It's New Comics Day, Wednesday, May 10th, 2017, and you're listening to God and Comics, the most anticipated sequel since the Book of Acts. On today's show, we talk about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, the newest film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We will talk about what this film gets right and gets wrong in the two areas in which we have expertise, theology and aliens who look like raccoons. <laughs> Plus, as always, we'll have our recommendation, this or that, and a whole lot more. I'm your host, Father Jonathan Michikin. I am rector of Church of the Holy Comforter in Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania. On the line with me today are Father Kyle Tomlin. Father Kyle, where are you? I'm at Church of the Messiah in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And also here on the line is Father Matt Stromberg. Father Matt, where are you? I'm the rector of St. George's Episcopal Church in Schenectady, New York. I want to, at the very beginning here, mention uh, something a little bit new and a little bit different here for God and Comics. We actually uh, have a sponsor now. We are sponsored by the Living Church which is a really wonderful thing uh, that we're very excited about. The Living Church uh, is an organization that is probably uh, best known in sort of Anglican, Episcopalian circles uh, for putting out the Living Church magazine. Uh, they also do the Episcopal Musician's Handbook, uh, which is in almost every Episcopal parish. But they are far more expansive than that. Uh, the Living Church, both in its magazine and its website, covers a, a tremendous amount of stuff. Theology, culture, books, film, movies, anything, you name it. And has a, a pretty wide readership and, and a wide ecumenical reach as well. So even though some of the news items are, are directed to Anglicans and Episcopalians, it's really a, a magazine, a program that, that is good for all all people who like to read smart, interesting, and fun things. They also have Covenant, which is uh, the, the Living Church's blog, and I'm pleased to be one of the writers for that. So we're really excited about the Living Church uh, coming on with us. Um, we're looking forward to what that partnership is going to bring in the future. And if you want to know more about the Living Church, I, I recommend, I highly recommend you go on over to livingchurch.org, and you can find out all about it there. We're going to have our recommendation now, and it just so happens that I have our recommendation this week, and uh, it was a hard choice for me, I have to tell you this week. I was having real trouble picking between two uh, graphic novels I read this past week that I really loved, and so I know this is cheating a little bit, but I am just going to mention The Runner-Up was a, a graphic novel that my, my wife found and, and recommended to me and I really enjoyed uh, for children called Ghosts by Raina Telgmeier. I'm not sure if that's how you say her name or not, but it's a really lovely book, especially if you have kids. Do check that out. But what I am going to recommend officially is a book called The Shadow Hero by Jean Luen Yang uh, and Sunny Liu, I think is how you say the name of the, uh, the artist. Yang, you may very well be familiar with. Uh, we've talked about some of his work on the program before. He's he's most famous for doing a book called American Born Chinese and another one called Boxers and Saints. Um, but he's also you know worked for the big companies. He he did a stint on Superman and I think is still writing a book called New Superman if I'm not uh, mistaken for DC and and a bunch of other stuff like that 
as well. The Shadow Hero is a, a fascinating book uh, because in it, Yang and Liu are bringing back a character from the golden era of comics named the Green Turtle. This was a, a character that was created by a, a man named Chu Hing uh, in around 1944. And he was supposed to be, you know, so this is the height of sort of World War II era uh, kind of comic pr production and, you know, and also the height of the sort of beginnings of the superhero craze where every company was kind of popping up with their own Superman and Batman and so forth. And this was supposed to be a character who was defending China from the Japanese. And the, if you actually look at the storylines in those in those comics, a lot of quite racist things said about the Japanese in them. But what's interesting about it is that Chu apparently intended for this character, or the, the thought is that he intended for this character to be Chinese. The company said, we don't want a Chinese hero. We want him to be Caucasian, even though this is taking place in China. And so he rebelled against the company by never showing the guy's face. He would always draw him from the back or from the side or with an arm in front of his face uh, so that you never could actually tell what his ethnicity was. It was not a long-lived comic. It only lasted about five issues. But uh, Yang was really interested in this character and wanted to revitalize him and give him a new backstory as a Chinese-American hero. And so that's what he did. The story is set in, in the 40s. It's set in Chinatown, although they never tell you what city's Chinatown it is, uh, but some, somewhere in America. And it's the story of this kid who basically grows into uh, taking on this role as a superhero. He has uh, a mother who kind of starts to push him in the direction of doing this when she has an encounter with a real superhero. And it's the first time in her life that anything interesting or exciting has ever happened to her. And so now she's going to try and just talk her son into it. Um, and so she pushes him at first. Uh, and then... You know, I don't want to spoil anything, but he has kind of a tragic event happen to him. And when that takes place, he actually is visited by this the spirit of the tortoise. So they have these, these various kind of Chinese uh, spirits that sort of shadow spirits that show up in the book. And one of them is the tortoise. And these spirits uh, used to be the spirits of the great dynasties of China, but since those dynasties have died out, these spirits have had to exist in the shadows of other people. And so in order to do that, you know, they say to the person they want to, to be with, I would like to live in your shadow. Ask me any promise and I will make that promise, fulfill that promise for you. And so the tortoise asks this of this kid and and his uh, response is, I want to never be shot. I want to be able to, to not have to worry about ever being shot. And so uh, the tortoise says, done, promise is done. And that basically becomes his, his power. You know, in a lot of ways, it's a pretty standard story. It's not breaking a lot of new ground in terms of hero stereotypes and um, you know, tropes and things like that. But it is interesting, both because of the setting, it's not a setting that we, we see a lot in, in superhero books, and because of the kind of family dynamics that go into it, the relationship between 
this young man and his father and his mother, the eventual kind of uh, exploration that he does uh, to to decide to become a hero for his own reasons and not for anybody else's, and uh, the sort of challenges that that he meets along the way. It's very nicely drawn um, in a, a period sort of way, and so I think a lot of folks uh, will will enjoy it. So, The Shadow Hero uh, by Jean Luen Yang and Sunny Liu. Well, we're going to uh, move now into our main discussion, and our main discussion for today is going to be on the topic of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, the new blockbuster film. And joining us for that discussion is Alexi Sargent, returning to the program. Uh, Alexi is assistant editor at First Things. He has written for the American Conservative, Common Wheel, New Criterion, Alatea, and his review of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 appeared earlier this week on Acculturated. So, Alexi, we're really pleased to have you back with us. It's a pleasure to be returning to the show. And might I say, uh, always a pleasure to have a guest with a bow tie. We don't often get that, so it's exciting. I believe your bow tie was uh, an important uh, feature in The New Yorker recently, if I'm not mistaken. That's true. Yeah. Uh, I spoke to a New Yorker reporter who was writing an article about Rod Dreher, author of The Benedict Option, and uh, I got a call from the fact checker later just checking that I was indeed wearing a bow tie when I spoke to the reporter because that <laughs> detail made its way into the final article. There you go. It's very, it's very important information. Well, Alexi, uh, it really is great to have you, have you back on the program. And uh, before we get into uh, too much more with with Guardians of the Galaxy, um, last time you were on, we didn't really get a chance to talk about your background with comics. And so I wonder if maybe you can just uh, say a few words about uh, what your history with comics is. Absolutely. Well, as a youngster, I was pulled into superheroes through things like the Justice League Unlimited show. Uh, and then eventually Teen Titans, Young Justice. There were a lot of uh, good animated shows that introduced me to the DC and the Marvel universes, got me more interested in the comic books. I created some superhero-related things. In high school, I wrote the script for a play called Team Redeemed, which was an allegorical superhero drama. It's kind of about the story of salvation, but told with superhero characters. And then in college, I wrote another superhero piece, uh, a short film called Captain Invincible is Dead, which was a dramedy about the former sidekicks of Captain Invincible coming together in the wake of the passing of this famous superhero and figuring out if someone should be the new Captain Invincible, where should they go from there? Uh, they're kind of a group of young people figuring out their place in the world. And I like the ambiance of them being superhero sidekicks uh, to convey that sense of liminality uh plus also very fun coming up with superheroes to include in that so one of them was a character named hat trick whose power is to never not be wearing a hat whenever she takes off a hat there's another hat underneath oh here's a here's a thing that god and comics listeners might be interested uh and i am going to be speaking at doxicon oh yes the, uh, talk about that because that's fascinating to me it's it's really it's really cool. I'm excited to go. Uh, it's a uh, Christian sci-fi and fantasy convention being hosted in Washington D.C. and this August 18th through 19th, uh, I'll be there speaking about 
authority in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, so things of interest to Gotham's Comics listeners. I'm going to be talking about especially the Avengers films and the Captain America films since they're tracking the, the question of authority and the question of power and those the interrelation between the two of them. Uh, the ta- title of the talk is The Mighty and the Worthy. And uh, my wife, Leah Labresco, is going to be the keynote speaker at Doxicon. She's going to be talking about uh, two fantasy series as, uh, and sort of contrasting the way they think of uh, the fallenness of the world. The, uh, the title of her talk is Wizardry and the Wounds of the World. I know she appeared on this podcast once with you guys as well. Yeah, that looks like such a cool event. Um, We'll put a link on the show page so that if anybody wants to uh, register for it, they can, because uh, uh, I I love the idea of this. I think, um, you know, this sounds like the sort of thing God and Comics should have a... uh, have a booth at or something we should really <laughs> that's a really good idea yeah. um yeah, yeah you can find out more stuff about that at www.doxicon.org uh and uh i'll put you in touch with the people who are planning it because it'd be wonderful to have gotten comics there yeah absolutely yeah. okay so uh, alexi is there some place that that people can find out more about some of these these projects and things that you're doing uh, or get in touch with you if they want to want to do that you can follow me on twitter at Alexi Sargent, or find links to all my articles at about.me slash Alexi Sargent. Thank you. Okay. So we're going to go ahead and and talk about this film, and uh, I'm just going to say at the offset, I don't think we're going to try not to do any sort of major spoilers, but having said that, uh, it's impossible to talk about the film without talking about the film. And so if your goal is to go into the movie pristine with no information about the story whatsoever, uh, you might want to pause the podcast here and come back to it after. Having said that, uh, let me just start by, um, you know, I want to talk about a number of things. There's there's a lot of fertile ground for conversation about, uh, I think, spirituality and theology in this film and we'll we'll certainly get to that uh let me just start though by asking you guys your general reactions to the film and what what you thought of it uh let's start with you father kyle what did you think Uh, generally i thought it was a great movie it was a lot of fun it was um kind of what we've come to expect from a guardians of the galaxies movie it's been a while since i saw the first movie it's probably been two years now and i haven't i've only seen it the one time so I don't know how it compares necessarily with the first one, although my kind of inclination was I liked the first one slightly better. But I thought that um, I thought that it was a fun film. It was what we've come to expect from Marvel. Okay. Father Matt, what did you think? Oh, I, I, I thought it was hilarious, for one. There lots of, lots of good laughs in this film. And visually, everything you want in a cosmic Marvel epic it had the kind of tribute to Kirby all, all through it. Uh, and, and it's exciting to see, you know, such kind of grand space scapes on, on the big screen and, and lots of uh, cool looking aliens, lots of bright color. And it was just a lot of fun, funny characters, vivid characters, well-rendered characters. I may have liked it slightly better than the first one. I, I think the first one kind of, you know, it was volume one, and it was about the setup. And and, and this, they, you, you kind of know the characters a little bit, and you're able to just take off from 
from the get-go and, and really get deeper into who they are as, as people. When you say uh, Kirby running all through it, I assume you mean the uh, small, adorable character that shows up in the Super Smash Brothers video game? Is that... No. Or... Jack Kirby. Or former Minnesota twin Kirby Puckett? Is that... No, Jack Kirby. Okay. No, Father Jonathan. We're talking about the king of comics here, Jack Kirby. Oh, right. Oh, the guy we did a whole episode about. Oh, that's right. Okay. Um, Alexi, what did you think of the film? I was a big fan of the first Guardians of the Galaxy, and I think Volume 2 surpassed it. I was really impressed. All of the humor was still there, all of the you know bickering character dynamic, but by going a little deeper into what makes these characters tick, I think the director and cast really uh, created a stellar installment with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. A stellar installment. That's so to speak. I, li- <laughs> I like what you did there. Okay. That, that's the quote for the DVD, right? A that's right. <laughs> let's let's talk about w- one more thing before we kind of dig into some of the meat of the the story, and that's the thing that everybody talks about. They talked about it with the first film, and they're talking about it with this one too. And that is the music in this film. What are your thoughts on the the kind of musical palette that runs throughout this? It was groovy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I think it adds a lot of personality to the to the film, and and they made the music a major part of the movie, as they did with the first one. And I think that's that's one of the characteristics that we've come to expect from the franchise. So yeah, I, I'm I'm looking forward to adding that to my uh, my Spotify and, and and you know grooving out to that soundtrack. Now, you know, in some ways, this is not new territory at this point, right? Like, they did this in the first film, and they just kind of doubled down on it in the second. But it's interesting that the music they choose is, is it's late 70s, early 80s. It's not necessarily, like, the coolest happeningest music of that moment. It's like, some of it's a little, it's not obscure necessarily, but it's a little further outside of the box, it's even bordering in some places on on more of a kind of soft rock. And yet, it's it somehow just works so incredibly well with crazy mash-em-up action sequences that we're used to hearing, you know, blaring guitars and hard beats and, you know, uh, uh, something like that. And then instead, um, we get, you know, Brandy and... <laughs> there was a great character moment. Uh, using Brandy or a Fine Girl, the 1972 hit by Looking Glass, because mm-hmm. uh, we had Kurt Russell's character, uh, who is Ego the Living Planet, mm-hmm. quoting from Brandy in a way that reveals things about his character, right? When he says, Brandy, you're a fine girl, what a good wife you would be, but my life, my love, and my lady is the sea, and then identifies himself as the sailor in that song, whose life, whose love, and whose lady is the sea, right? He's always got to be roaming, got to be spreading himself throughout the universe and this ends up being kind of very important to understanding what's going on with that character but you know it's also in the moment we see it on screen a bonding with his son because they're both into the same set of tunes yeah and and they refer to that as the greatest song ever written in that conversation <laughs> that they have with each earth's, other. earth's greatest contribution earth's, to uh, yeah you know that's right the universe of music yeah that's right it is very it is very funny that um today i just saw a report on the interwebs that um walkmans have now been booming in sales 
that people are searching out vintage Walkmans in light of this uh, movie. Does anybody still make Walkmans? No, they went out of production. I have one, but um, <laughs> and I still use it, believe it or not. But um, they went out of production, I think it was in... Uh, 2010 might have been the last year that they produced them. It wasn't too terribly long ago. Apparently the props designer for Guardians of the Galaxy had to kind of come up with his own Walkman when they really wanted that prop to appear in the film because they contacted Sony and they said, we don't have any of those anymore. So Mm. they pulled something together from, you know, I I guess the broken pieces of a couple different Walkman to make the one we see on screen. Oh, how funny. Interesting. it, it sets the tone for the the movie because it's you know the music and the kind of retro uh, references that are are sprinkled throughout and the Walkman itself it's a little bit funky it's a little bit goofy it's it's very pop and that that kind of it really like I said sets the tone for the movie and it tells us a lot about the character uh, the, or the characters in in, in the movie how how they relate to the world and, and, and what they're like. Well, let's talk a little bit about these these characters. And Alexi already mentioned uh, the character of Ego, played by Kurt Russell. And Kurt Russell's character here, Ego, is a, a living planet. He's also a self-described celestial or god with a small g. That's his humility. He says uh, <laughs> that he uses a small g. And uh, this, I think, is just something that screams for us to talk about. Here you have a character who is uh, literally being identified as a god. Uh, he is immortal. He is uh, seemingly has the power to control and, and cre- create things and manipulate things and do things that, that only a god uh, theoretically could do. And he is revealed to be... I don't think this is spoiling too much to say that he is revealed to be uh, a character with less than ideal aims for how he wants to use that power, um, that he intends to, uh, in fact, spread himself, because he is he is the Kurt Russell figure, but he is also the planet in, itself, and he wants to spread himself throughout the universe, uh, which basically means that every other life form has to go so that he can be everything that there is. What do you guys think about this character? Um, And particularly, uh, I'd like to know what you think of this character theologically. What is, what is this, what is this movie saying? Perhaps not aware of itself, but certainly saying about God in this kind of a depiction. I think it's salutary to think of this movie's ego as a certain a certain type of pagan god that he falls into the archetype of a Zeus or a Jupiter or any pagan god that is this kind of father figure but also this playboy figure right because ego's ego's plan to spread himself throughout the universe also tracks with his his plan to go around the universe uh, courting women of many species and. Uh, uh, creating offspring on all these worlds, as it turns out, is the secret origin of, of Peter Quill, uh, you know, half-human son of Ego the Living Planet, uh, which goes to explain some of his cocksure attitude, I suppose. Uh, but I think I think of Ego here as a like pretty uh, damning indictment of that conception of God 
a conception of a of a god as a, a being that just exists to spread itself through the universe that exists kind of in this very male mode of sexual tourism like zeus and all of his uh mistresses from greek mythology this kind of powerful figure that doesn't care about maintaining the rest of the universe but only cares about expanding itself through the universe and of course our god the god with a capital g has no need of that kind of self-expansion because he is self-sufficient right he is being itself he doesn't have to fill the universe because he upholds the universe mm. and, yeah and I, I think it's fair to say that our god would be the opposite of ego right i mean in terms of the word itself his term ego betrays the fact that all he cares about is himself and our god of course is um is a, a trinitarian god who is father son and holy spirit and as such there's uh, nothing egotistical about him there's more of a sense of community within him we might say um within the godhead so there's there's certainly a sharp contrast there i was not familiar with ego it because i have not read a lot of guardians of the galaxy but one thing that did strike me in this and i, I was thinking a lot about it is that the earth appearance of ego looks an awful lot like the beyonder from the secret wars uh, uh, yes and, you know, I remember that character as being extremely egotistical as a god, because that's who he was, right? So, um, so it's just an interesting little observation there. Yes, he's just, uh, the Beyonder is a sentient universe. Yeah, and, and I think they, they, the makers of the film sort of combined, I think, ideas that, from the Beyonder with uh, Ego, the living planet. But uh, the Ego actually comes from Thor, originally and and he's popped up in the fantastic four and stuff like that but uh more to the point about about the theological implications of 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 ego at first i thought gee this is sort of like a parody of of god it's sort of like the new atheist conception of what god might be he's this megalomaniacal uh self-involved cruel callous uh individual but then I got to thinking, you remember back in the first film? Now, I, I, I had the benefit. I just rewatched the first film before seeing this one. And you remember what uh, Peter's uh, mother says about him, about Ego, before her death. She, she refers to him as an angel of pure light or right. something like that, mm. right? Mm. Uh, and, of course, that immediately made me think of Second Corinthians 11... 14 where where it says the devil masquerades himself as an as an angel of light and and i thought well has anybody picked up on this and i i yesterday i did a bit of a google search and i someone's beaten me to the punch with with recognizing that the the miracle of the internet uh on movie pilot there's a wonderful uh, article by a guy named tim bacon and he he says this is the secret to understanding Ego's uh, character, that he's really, he's a devilish, he's a satanic kind of anti-god. And he has this wonderful quote that I want to steal. He says, as C.S. Lewis observed in the Screwtape Letters, in Christian theology, God is full and overflowing. The devil is empty and seeks to consume in order to be filled. 
Christianity views God as the wellspring of goodness in life, desiring relationship with all things in order that he may fill them with all that is goodness and life. The devil, in contrast, feels a gnawing emptiness and desires to consume all things into himself in order to fill that emptiness. And boy, I thought that he just nailed it. <laughs> that's that's what I wanted to say, but but much more eloquently put. Um, <laughs> that's exactly how uh, Ego talks about his motivation in this film, that it strings from this loneliness, uh, that he kind of can't find any other beings quite like him, a living planet, and so he's going to do his plan to, to spread himself through the whole universe. Uh, that's a really, uh, really good observation that it, it's sort of a, a Lucifer-like figure since we first hear of him as an angel of light and then we meet him as this uh, universe-devouring uh, planet. Yeah, because he starts off being like, oh, he, he's like the dad that he always wanted. He's cool. He's funny. They play catch together, you know? And uh, he really, you know, comes across as an angel of light, you know, as as the father that, that, that we always wanted, you know, mm-hmm. or that Peter always wanted. It's really revealing for uh, Peter Quill, Star-Lord's character, played by Chris Pratt in this film, that a lot of his sort of negative tendencies are very similar to to his father, even though his father has them at a planetary scale, and he has them just at the scale of this, you know, roguish rapscallion traveling through space. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I, I sort of take the arc of the movie for, for Peter to involve uh, turning away from some of what uh, his father represents and becoming more like a, a person who can be responsible, right, who can be dependent on others, right, who doesn't need doesn't driven just by this all-consuming ego, so to speak, but can actually learn to be part of a family with these other guardians of the galaxy that have become this surrogate family. Well, um, and and I I definitely want to talk a little bit about the theme of family because that's also a very big thing in this movie. But before we we get off of uh, the ego character and and his godlikeness, I just wanted to share you know the thought that immediately came to mind for me after watching this film and that was um to to go back to um bishop robert Barron, who i'm a big fan of if you ever bishop Barron does the word on fire series and youtube videos and stuff like that and so there's a lot of that stuff at the popular popular level but he's also you know a bona fide theologian he's written some some pretty heavy theology books as well if you ever dig into Barron's theology kind of the center point of Barron's theological work has been this premise, this thesis that he that he has that we get God wrong when we think of him as the supreme being because if we think of him as the supreme being we are actually relegating him to just being another piece or part of the world, part of creation. And he traces this idea back to Duns Scotus, and that's kind of where he sees the trajectory of that. He, on on the other hand, kind of does this weave from Aquinas up through modern theologians, Balthazar, and so forth. And his argument is not that God's not supreme. It's not that God's not the supreme. He's not the supreme being. He is being itself. And 
so the point of that for Baron is that God is not in competition with the world for space. And he says that a lot of people, including the new atheists who we've already mentioned here, a lot of people get God wrong because they're thinking of God as the biggest version of us or the biggest version of whatever. And we think of God as being in competition with the creation that he needs to. So in other words, um, and you you hear the anger of that in the the angry part of that is comes out in new atheism or even in old atheism, right? You know, in Milton's, you know, I'd rather uh, I'd ra- <laughs> I'd rather be free in hell than serve in heaven. You know, uh, it's, rather rule in hell, right? Than serve in right. Heaven, I'm in sorry. Fact. Thank you. Um, but it's it's that it's that same impulse. It's that same idea. Like if God is big, then I must become small. In comparison, if God takes up more room, I must have less room. And and that, I mean, that really is a depiction of original sin, right? It's like that's the fear that by God having his space, his reality, I have a little bit less. And Barron argues, a la Aquinas, uh, that no, in fact, God co-inheres with the world. That's the word that he uses. That God is in the world and yet is not in competition with it. God is being itself. So there's no like, you know, spot where God has to sit. And if he's sitting there, then there's not enough room for your chair, so to speak. <laughs> I, I think that's totally at the heart of, you know, this is why I, I said before that they may have said some things about God without realizing it. I think the kind of idea of a god as a character who eventually has to destroy everything in existence so that it can all become him is that fear that we have of the supreme being as as meaning a competitive god yeah yeah and to to that point i mean look at even some of the ideas in in popular christianity today that are very gnostic ideas that in the end, what God's going to do is blow up the world, right? And right. everybody's just going to sort of fly off to some magical place called heaven, as it were, as a disembodied spirit, which is very unbiblical. Um, right. But that's that. That's where you see that fear being played out, right? That worry that, well, someday God's just going to blow this all up. So. Mm-hmm. Or even the opposite, uh, the opposite thing that can happen, which is that people start to go, well, it doesn't matter what we do in creation. This is also a Gnostic idea, right? It doesn't matter how we treat the people around us or the world around us or anything because eventually God is going to cancel all that out by sucking us up through this rapture thing and we won't have to be concerned about it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it might be a stretch, but I think some of that Gnosticism plays into one other aspect of the character of Ego in the film because he's portrayed as being at heart a brain, uh, mm-hmm. Who then like creates bodies that are mere projections or puppets of him? The, yes. the bodies played by yeah. Kurt Russell, yeah. uh, which is a like you know kind of reasonable approximation of the way a Gnostic heresy talks about the incarnation, uh, where right. where Jesus is not really human and really flesh, uh, but merely a merely a puppet for a a holy uh, spiritual Messiah. Hmm. Right. The uh-huh. body doesn't matter; yeah. only the mind matters. Right. right. Yeah. Right, whereas Orthodox Christianity sees humans as a unity uh, of body and mind, uh, and, and body and soul, I suppose, and uh, doesn't kind of truck with the the Gnostic dismissal of the flesh because it's through 
the means of matter that we receive salvation. Right. Yeah. It's all about mind over matter. I don't mind and you don't matter. <laughs> da, 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 da. Um, we need to go back to the sound effects. That we had. <laughs> That's right. We got to get those things back. <laughs> I gave the thing to my kids, so it's too late for that. Let's circle back around to the topic that uh, Alexi introduced a little while ago, and that is the topic of family. This is another big thing in the in the film, uh, and it runs through the whole film in a number of different ways. What is family, and what does family mean? So we have we have obviously the sort of father son relationship that we've already talked about. We have the sister relationship between Gamora and Nebula, which is explored. Um, we have Rocket raccoon with his own kind of internal issues about uh family and he kind of explores that with yondu and there's this sort of interesting connection that becomes made between between the two of them and also baby groot um i'm not really (laughs) sure exactly where to fit baby groot into it other than to say that uh he is the most gosh darn cute thing that you've ever seen i think baby Groot is essential, actually, because mm-hmm. part of what pulls together this uh, surrogate space-faring family is their shared responsibility for this tiny, adorable, very naive tree creature that they're in charge of. Yeah. Yes. It is It is the most adorable thing that Vin Diesel has ever done, I would imagine. <laughs> it, it's, it, it's Vin Diesel? It is Vin yeah. Diesel, yes. Another piece of trivia, Vin Diesel not only voiced uh, Baby Groot in the English version of Guardians of the Galaxy, but in like 17 foreign language versions where he said the equivalent of I am Groot for all of uh, Baby Groot's lines for those movies, too. (laughs) Translations of the movie, too. Nice. Yeah, I do think it's kind of it's 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 sweet and striking in in parts where where you see the crew kind of taking on the role of of, of kind of parents to to Groot. They ask, yeah, who 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 has Groot, and you see them kind of cuddle up with a little root creature. <laughs> he he remind no joke. He reminded my wife and I of our own children to like oh, a a strange thought- degree, you know. I thought continually, oh, he's like my son. <laughs> yes, the part where they, yeah. they're trying to get him to bring a specific thing back to them, and he keeps bringing back other stuff. And I was like, that is my kids. That is exactly what my children would do. What do we think this film is trying to say about what family is and um, what the importance of family is? It's interesting to me that there's a kind of somewhat non-traditional, somewhat... Uh, chosen, somewhat kind of constructed family at the heart of this this series because of the the guardians themselves becoming a sort of family, but they're all from different backgrounds and they're all sort of orphans or widowers or rogue science experiments. There's some kind of, you know, people cut off from other connections that have been flung together. And then the movie challenges that a little bit by showing us the connections that they do still have outside of this group and you see that in some cases that's exactly what they're running away from. Uh, like Gamora, who's being literally chased by her sister Nebula, her sister slash deadly rival Nebula. And then the movie suggests that coming to some kind of acceptance or some kind of terms with, with all of those familial bonds, you know, both the ones we begin with and the ones we've chosen ourselves, is important for growing up and kind of integrating who we are. So Gamora has, has to not only except uh, being part of the Guardians as 
fractious and immature as they are, but has to figure out a slightly less murderous way of uh, having this sisterly connection with Nebula. And I thought that was a sort of exciting and touching thing that the movie did, uh, expanding on the character of Nebula from uh, being more of a bit part in the first film to being this really important uh, foil and character that reveals things about Gamora in the second. A, a lot of the characters have very serious father issues. I, I mean, and that's at the heart of the movie, obviously, is is Star-Lord's own relationship with his, his father, Ego. <laughs> but, I mean, Gamora and her sister, I mean, Thanos is, is their father. Very Not abusive. exactly dad of the year. <laughs> no, no, a very, a very yeah, abusive kind of upbringing. Even you have a Rocket Raccoon's sort of anger towards the scientists that created him. And the Ranger as well. Um, uh, the, the guy who was sort of like Star-Lord's adopted father, the guy who abducted him. Uh, Yondu. Oh, Yondu. Yeah. Yondu. Yondu. And he talks about he's when he was a little baby, his parents just sold slavery as an infant. In the biblical tradition, there's a sometimes a broader understanding of family than the the default in, say, contemporary America, right? Where mothers, brothers, that can be whoever does Jesus's will, right? When Jesus is talking about that, uh, and he creates a family in the church uh, by making us brothers and making us part of his body, even. So I guess um, just for me, the uh, thrown togetherness of the guardians family uh, speaks to some christian themes about how how a family can come together and what it can mean to be a family even beyond those kind of first relationships we hopefully have with those uh, who are directly related to us but that familial bonds actually broaden outwards from that we talked about sometimes the family as the school of love but the purpose is not just to keep the love within the family but for love to expand out and make many more people our family, which, you know, in their own kind of imperfect way, it seems the, the Guardians are starting to do as they assemble this this crew that can come to comprise even people who were once their enemies. Yeah, it reminded me, in that vein, it reminded me of quite a bit of the conversation that we had uh, two episodes ago about superhero teams. And in that, we were talking about teams being a reflection of the church, as it were, and I think that that thread does seem to run through this movie in a positive sense that, you know, whereas we, the church, are, are those who are gathered around the man, God, man, Jesus Christ. In the movie, there's sort of a gathering around their common call, which is to be the guardians of the galaxy, to be the ones to kind of, you know, protect others. So you, you could see that kind of, that ref, kind of a reflection. You guys are making some really great points about this. And. Uh, and I think you're right that there is a kind of expansive sense of our brothers and our sisters and who those people can be that we see a little bit of in, in these characters. I, I just, you know, one of the things that it occurred to me, and this, this is going to sound like it's critical, I don't really mean it as being hypercritical of the film, because I think actually they do a pretty good job of exploring these relationships in a uh, as realistic a way as you can given the kind of movie that it is right like they 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 have to 
serve up a lot of, you know, shooty shooty and fighty fighty, or we're not going to plunk down the money. Um, but you know, given that constraint, they do, they do a really good job of, I think, exploring these things. But having, having said that, you know, one of the, one of the, one of my hobby horses is the way in which culture, our culture devalues friendship. Um, this is something, you know, Wesley Hill's written a lot about this, my friend Wesley Hill. It's an ongoing and, and sort of common phenomenon that we think of friendship as a lesser reality than romantic relationship, as a lesser reality than family and so on and so forth. And so I think one of the results of that in the culture is that we've kind of come to this place where the way that we signify how important our friends are to us is to refer to them as family. And, you know, and that's a beautiful thing. And I think many of us do that. I've certainly had friendships like that where I've said that before. Oh, I think of this person as a member of the family and stuff like that. And I don't, I'm not saying necessarily that there's anything wrong with that. I just think that, you know, I wish there was a way that we could see an expression of friendship itself because that's really what these people are to each other i mean you have individual family relationships right gamora and nebula and peter and ego and so forth but really the the core group there what are their friends they're friends they're they have a kind of weird friendship (laughs) but right but they're ultimately that's what they are and that is and can be a powerful reality unto itself without it having to transform into a family in order for it to do so. So, you know, like when Jesus uh, says to his disciples, he says, I, you know, I, I call you my friends, uh-huh. right? That's not, he's not insulting them. Uh-huh. It's not like if he had said, I call you my family, it would have been of a higher order. I, I just, I just, I, that's something that, that comes up for me a lot. I wonder about it. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I think it's a solid point. I mean, I think we can want to make that push instead of just referring to friendship as something that's great in and of itself to wanting to call it family all the time. And I think that's a fair enough critique. In some ways, a critique of a tendency throughout Hollywood, you know, not only this franchise, but say the Fast and the Furious franchise show kind of tight-knit groups of unrelated people that go quickly from being friends to referring to each other as family. And it's tough to thread that needle because in some ways it's really good uh, that these movies are kind of driven by the engine of burgeoning family unit, but it is sort of sad that we can't see uh, friendship made the real focal point in in as much of a way in some of these large franchises that are so influential. Well, um, there's way more that that we could say about guardians of the galaxy um it was it's a great movie uh if you haven't seen it yet go out and see it so uh let us know what you think about this film uh we would love to hear from you and you don't have to take over the universe and displace all people to do that uh you can go to an ever-expanding universe called social media to do it and that'll work just fine we would love to hear from you on twitter we are at god and comics or you can access us through facebook uh, facebook.com slash god and comics we're hoping uh, to hear from you there but for now we're going to move on to our final segment 
this or that. This or that. This or that. Come on, everybody. Let's this or that. Huh? My first one today goes to Father Jonathan, and this one is a TV-related question. Doogie Hauser, MD, or House, MD? <laughs> that so okay so here's what i have to weigh so doogie hauser has a certain nostalgic appeal to me because i remember watching it as a kid uh, on the other hand i i'm i'm just guessing i've not sort of done the scientific work of watching these shows back to back to figure this out but i'm willing to bet my hypothesis is that if i were to watch these two shows back to back that House would turn out to be a better written and executed program than, than the show about the kid doctor in the high tops. But, uh, you know, despite that, I think I'm still going to say Doogie Hauser because, uh, you know, I just I'm going to go for the pure nostalgia factor. Alexi, are you aware of Doogie Hauser? Did, did you know that Doogie Hauser uh, existed? Because this I have to feel I feel like that was on the air probably before you were born. The name rings a bell. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's Neil Patrick Harris. (laughs) Right, Neil. That was that's how he became famous was was being Doogie Hauser. Yeah. Yes. When he he was he was was like sixteen. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If that right. Well, he was playing a sixteen-year-old character, Doogie Hauser, M.D. So he was a sixteen-year-old doctor. He was like super smart, and so he'd already finished all the school, and they'd made him a doctor. But he still lived at home with his parents and, you know, was like a kid. Yeah, that is way weirder than I would have guessed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's real weird. It's real weird. (laughs) The next one I'll give to Alexi. Adam Warlock or Adam Strange? I'm giving it to Adam Strange. We'll see what they end up doing with Adam Warlock in the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. But he's never been that interesting of a character to me. Whereas Adam Strange has this, uh, this great john carter of mars thing going on where he's zapping around on those zeta beams and uh and he had a good episode on the young justice cartoon show so adam strange it is good choice i I really liked what they did with adam strange in the dc new frontier where they made him uh, a patient at arkham asylum and uh and all of the kind of fantastic space adventures were just products of his own you know psychosis that was a pretty cool little take on him gosh that book is so good it really frontiers so much it really is all right father matt next one goes to you all right a walkman or a zoom oh um i've never owned a zoom neither has anyone else (laughs) my cousin has (laughs) he's the only Um, person i know who has that's right yeah, so I'm going to have to go with the Walkman. I've had many a long subway ride at Tyler School of Art uh, listening to uh, my cassette tapes on my Walkman. All right, next one. Uh, we'll give this to Father Jonathan. Betty Boop or Jessica Rabbit? I'm going to go with Jessica Rabbit. I'm not a bad character. I'm just drawn that way. Man, you, can't, you can't beat that. Anyway. All right, next one. I'll give this one to Alexi. Secret Wars, the original Secret Wars, or Crisis on Infinite Earths? Secret Wars, the original Secret Wars, because that stemmed from a desire to sell toys, and it did that 
whereas Crisis on Infinite Earth stemmed from desire to clean up the DC multiverse permanently, and it certainly did not permanently succeed at that. <laughs> great great answer. That's a great answer. All right, next one. Who are we on? Father Matt. Underdog or Droopy Dog? Droopy Dog. Where's Droopy Dog from? It's a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. Oh, okay. dear, dear me. Oh, that guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, under, Underdog. I really enjoyed the Underdog uh, book at Free Comic Book Day. All right, Father Jonathan, next one goes to you, and I'm giving you this one. This is a music-related one. Okay. Um, I'm giving it to you in large part because you're probably, the beyond me, the oldest person here who might actually know what I'm talking about. Yes. So your choice is between two songs, the Kinks song, I Wish I Could Fly Like Superman, or Prince's song, Bat Dance. You got to go with Prince. You got to oh, go with I Prince. I disagree. Well, you can disagree, but, uh, but you're wrong. It's, it's got to go to Prince. Wish I could fly like Superman. Come on. Come on. It's Come Prince. On. No, no, no. It's Prince. It's Prince. No, I'm sorry. Civil War. Civil War. Okay. Well, I'm going to start referring to you as the the host formerly known as Father Matt. (laughs) That's a very tough call because they're great. But you are right. They're both great. It is Prince. Mm -hmm. Oh, no. That's there. Thank you. Thank you. I feel validated as a human being now. Thank you. (laughs) All right, next one goes to Alexi. Honeycomb cereal or honey crisp cereal? Honey crisp cereal. And why? I like cereal and I like it crispy. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to lean to the honey crisp up. Though, like, my favorite is uh, cinnamon, cinnamon toast crust. Absolutely. Okay. I, I agree, Alexi. Uh, Daphne or Thelma? <laughs> oh, um,. Isn't it Velma or is it Thelma? Is it Velma? It's I Velma. I thought it was Velma. You're right. It's yeah. Velma. Uh, I'm going I'm I'm to have to go with Daphne. I, 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 I'm a brunette person. My wife's a brunette, so I better be. Wait, isn't Velma the Velma's brunette? Velma's the brunette. Wait, Velma's Daphne's the redhead. You guys need to, need to, you know... Uh... Isn't Thelma Fred's wife? And, and... <laughs> You're not even thinking of the right show. Guys, this isn't Scooby Doo works at all. Oh, oh, oh my gosh, it's Scooby Doo. You know, and and Father Stromberg would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for you crazy kids and your dog. (laughs) Okay, Daphne is the redhead from Scooby Doo. Yeah, Yeah. I have to go with Daphne. That no, I no, I had I had a serious crush on Daphne when I was a kid. Yeah. Because she, with those pink uh, stockings or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Next one goes to Father Jonathan. (laughs) I don't know what the transition is from that. Just keep rolling. I didn't have Just keep rolling. Yeah. The next one goes to you. Um, Howard the Duck or the movie Steel. The 1986 movie Howard the Duck. Oh, okay. So Shaquille both Shaquille O'Neal's movie Steel. Both movies is what you're saying. <laughs> I, I, I'm yeah, because if it was the comic book Howard the Duck versus the movie Steel, that would be an easy choice. Oh yes, I but know. um, 
I'm not sure. I'm trying to remember. I'm not sure I've ever seen Steel. I know I've heard you guys talk about how terrible it is. I don't know that I've ever seen it. I've definitely seen Howard the Duck more than once. Uh, and is that something you want to admit? It's a oh, it's a terrible movie. It's an awful, awful movie. It was, but it has a again today's Father Jonathan theme is nostalgia. It has a certain nostalgia for me, not so much from its original viewing in the eighties, but when my wife and I were first dating and courting. Uh, this is something that came up in conversation as we wanted to try to find Howard the Duck and watch it. We had this sudden remembrance that it was a thing that had happened. And we went looking for it. This is back, way back when Blockbuster Video still existed. Uh, and uh, we tried to find it the there. And... Soon, right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, That's also from the Flintstones. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> uh, only Zune. Um, and, uh, so we, we, we tried to find it. They didn't have it. We went to a couple video stores. They didn't have it. So we gave up. And then like the next time that she and I hung out, uh, Gina had actually found and bought a copy of the video cassette tape of Howard the Duck. And I don't know how she did it. Cause this is like pre, uh, you know, everything being at your, at your door in 10 minutes from Amazon. Uh, but she did somehow do it. So we sat down and watched Howard the Duck together. And it was terrible. It was a terrible, <laughs> terrible idea. But it does make me think of my sweet wife. So I'm going to go with Howard the Duck. Uh, Alexi, you get the next one. And we're going to stick with the medical theme that we began with today. And I'm going to give you a choice between two doctors. Dr. Doom or Dr. Octopus? Uh, Dr. Doom, for sure. Dr. Doom... A uh, pretty great villain and uh, a great supporting character to the Fantastic Four. Dr. Octopus, lots of fun uh, and a fun foil to Spider-Man, but he hasn't become so central to the Spider-Man books that they feel incomplete without him. Whereas for the Fantastic Four, you're always most excited when Dr. Doom shows up in an issue, I'd say. Next one goes to Father Matt. And this one, because I know that you are the father of a girl, uh, goes to you. It's My Little Pony or Strawberry Shortcake. My daughter, Helen, doesn't watch either of those shows. She does have a My Little Pony that somebody gave to her. Uh, and I'm going to have to say uh, My Little Pony just because the whole... Uh, the whole uh, brony like phenomena is, is fascinating to me. Are are you a brony? Like, are you a brony? No, no. Oh. But it, but it's fascinating to me on a sociological like. I level. thought we were going to get a big reveal here that Father no. Matt's been a brony <laughs> this whole time. No, but but friendship is magic. <laughs> yes, I have been. I have become very familiar with my little pony as that's uh that's my daughter's favorite thing in the whole wide world and so i know now know all the ponies and i have read some my little pony comic books more times than i've read some of my own comic books i don't know if i'm subtly being made into a brony well my will father you know has the fr at the beginning so maybe you could be a frony yeah there you go a frony you know they actually are introducing a My Little Pony Day now in the whole um, free comic book day. Uh, Finally. Day. Finally. Yeah. Because we demanded it. <laughs> That's right. 
Yeah. Well, we'll have to do an episode of God and Comics to correspond. That's when you know that. we've really run out of stuff. Is when the My Little Pony episode hits. <laughs> go, okay, they're just they're just grasping for something at this point. We could bring my my five year old daughter on. As Absolutely. Our guest Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's see, Father Jonathan, Nell Carter, or Carter Hall. <laughs> what? Okay, help, help me out. Carter Hall. Carter oh, Hall. Man. Who's Carter oh, Hall? Oh, oh, right. Oh, Carter Hall. Right. Okay. Oh, um, oh, okay. Nell Carter or Carter Hall? Well, like, okay, I'll, I'll go with Carter Hall uh, because uh, I don't know that Nell Carter would be able to save me. I've, I'm not sure, like, what kind of abs she has. I don't know, you know, if she's got <laughs> superpowers I'm unaware of. Um Give me a break. Ah, that's the whole point of this was just to set you up to say that, wasn't it? That's right. She's nice. got her, her sassy humor. That could save you. That's true. That's true. That is her superpower. It's not quite as cool as hat trick, but it is It is pretty cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> that one's as cool as hat trick. That's right. Um, Haw- Hawkman, Carter Hall. I'm going to go okay. with that. And the very last one is for Alexi. Board games, sorry, or shoots and ladders. You know, I'm a board game aficionado, uh, but neither of those is in my <laughs> top ten. Uh, gosh, I guess sorry because it's got a it's got a great uh, great piece of flavor just worked into the name of the game, so you can say sorry really sarcastically as you knock someone back to the beginning of the board. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'd take I'd take a good German style board game like uh, Carcassonne or Settlers of Catan over either of those. <laughs> Sorry's one you can you can make a good apologetic for though. So hey. back going for it. And that's all I have. For today. <laughs> Sorry. 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 <laughs> well, um, that's all that we have then for this week's show. Uh, you can. Listen to the show again if you like, and you can find out more about some of the rad stuff that we talked about if you go to our show page at godandcomics.com. We always have lots of links there, lots of other cool information. We'll have a link up to uh, Alexi's review on Acculturated uh, of uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, so uh, please do check that out. You can also uh, pick up the RSS feed of the show there and subscribe to us through your favorite podcast service. Uh, And that includes iTunes. And if you are uh, over there on iTunes, uh, if you wouldn't mind giving us a rating uh, or a review or both, uh, we would really appreciate it. It it helps other people to to find the show. uh, And uh, we're all about other people finding the show. Uh, So please do go over there and uh, and do so if if you are so inclined. Our theme music, which you are hopefully banging your head to right now, is by Father Paul Wheatley, who tried to create his own planet once using his godlike powers, but gave up when he realized he would still have to pay for Netflix. Until next time, I'm Father Jonathan Michikin. I'm Father Kyle Tomlin. I'm Father Matt Stromberg. And, uh, and, uh, Thank you, Alexi. I just realized we didn't thank you for being on the show. Oh, no worries. I don't know how to do a professional podcast. I'm sorry, Living Church. We're, you know, anyway. Uh, Alexi. Sorry. (laughs) 
Alexi, thank you for being on the show. I hope we'll, we'll have you on again soon. Oh, I would look forward to it. It's been a pleasure. Okay. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye.